song by Sarah Watkins. If you know it, join in. It's called Take Up Your Spade. everybody. Um, welcome to Mayo's Way. Uh, if you're here with us for the first time, we're, we're extra excited that you're here. My name's Sarah. Um, we like to describe ourselves as a community of people that are captivated by the gospel, and we're trying to see the ways in which that we can forward that gospel here in Durham and abroad. Um, we're so excited to have Krista and Paige back with us. And we're so excited that we've got all of you and these little people back here with me. Um, so if you guys could all grab your sheet. Um, these guys are going to lead us in a, a community prayer. And, and what we sort of want that to be is we wanted a space where our kids can, can speak into this space and we can join with them in what they're doing. So um, will you guys help us sing? You ready to sing? Uh-oh, they look shy today. So we might have to help them out a lot today. So let's hear good singing voices today.
Thanks a lot, guys. See you guys later. Bye. Have fun. Um, so I've only got a couple of announcements tonight. Um, for starters, you know, this is sort of the the start of a, of a new year for lots of folks, lots of our students and our teachers. And um, so we want everybody to know that there's lots of great ways to get connected with Emmaus Way. Um, not only do we do some fun stuff on Sunday nights, but we do fun stuff throughout the rest of the week too. And all that fun stuff lives on this green card, which lives out there. So if you're looking for a way to connect, maybe you um, are interested in going to the pub and hanging out on Thursday nights. And um, if you're interested in that, there's some, a way to connect with that. Maybe you're interested in talking about arts and aesthetics or the text, and there are ways to do that here. Um, maybe you just want to get connected to a smaller group of people who do a whole number of, of different things, and there's ways to do that, too. All that stuff can be found on our website, but if you're a non-website person and you need a bright green piece of paper to remind you like I would, this is a good, a good thing to grab on your way out. Um, if you're new with us and you would like some more information about Emmaus Way or if you'd like to be part of any of our listservs or um, part of... Um, if you'd like to meet with somebody to, you know, talk about Emmaus Way, that's on this yellow card, and that's out there, too. Um, along with that, we know we're going to have lots of new people, and so um, we are going to host a little potluck on the 21st at the Jake's house. Jake's, will you raise your hand and smile and look friendly? Look how friendly they are. Doesn't everyone want to go to their house? I want to go to their house, yeah. So we're all going to go to their house after the service on the 21st, um, we'll keep reminding you about that, but it's a, it's a great time. They've got a big porch, and it's a walkable distance, right, guys? So it's up here on Watts Street, so um, especially if it's not a billion degrees like it is right now, you can just walk right up there. Um, we've got two announcements from the floor. Brett. Um, just going along with ways to connect at Emmaus Way, um, there's a group of us, and we don't make this announcement every week, but we do go out every week. Um, there's a group just kind of that changes every week that goes out to dinner after um, worship usually we kind of are the last people to hang out here um, cleaning up, but sometimes we'll, we'll head out early. But just feel free to grab me. Uh, I'm Brett, and just say, hey, you know, where, where are we going tonight? Or, or maybe give a suggestion. Yeah. Yeah, we'd love to have you join us. Yeah, and if the person giving the announcements wasn't such a dork, that's the first one. <laughs> on the green sheet that I should have told you about and I just forgot. But there's also an email address, so like if you're not sure if you're brave enough just to jump right in, you can email us ahead of time and say, hey, maybe I'd like to, to meet to go to dinner. Um, the other one is Ben.
talk through that decision and like what does the decision we made say about us going forward. But for now, we're here. We're living in the new things, and it's an exciting time. Yeah, we're really, um, really excited to be in this space. In fact, um, as I um, welcome Krista and Paige again, when, when Krista first sat down and played her first tune tonight, she said, man, I just love playing in this space. <laughs> so we're really excited to have you guys, and we're also really lucky to be in this space. And, and we're super excited because this is also the start um, of a new series for us, a new fall series about sort of our identity, and Krista and Paige are going to help us sort of introduce that. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, one of the things that, that is so standout about what you guys have here is your community life and, and the way you love each other so well, it seems to me as somebody who gets to come in and out every once in a while. And um, so the songs that we've chosen tonight kind of reflect some of the tension that goes with community life. Um, we're not living exactly communally in one sense of the word, in some senses, but um, we are, you guys, and Paige and I in our own communities, too, striving to know what it looks like to um, enter into other people's lives and allow other people to enter into our lives and our space. And um, we live in a culture where it's really easy to drive into your garage and put the door down and not interact. But um, we don't want to choose that because there's uh, such a richness that comes with being vulnerable and... um, drawing close to others. So it's, it's not always easy, but it's good. <clears throat> These first two songs, um, the first one, You Can't Fail Me Now, is new to me. Maybe it's new to you. You, can, you know it. Somebody's shaking their head like, it's not new to me. Do you guys know this? Um, I don't know why I haven't heard it before, because it's a great song. So please sing along. And uh, the next one is Over the Rhine, a song that's an old-time favorite of mine. So... <laughs> Storylines. 
hard to love the worst of us Mercy more than life, but trust me Mercy's just a warning shot across the bow I live for yours and you can't fail me now I live for your mercy You can't fail me now You can't fail me
Krista, who is so talented. This woman has been, uh, the first time she played at Emmaus Way, uh, my wife Mimi was like, who was that? And uh, I think her first song was bought on the way home on the iPhone. Uh, But uh, Krista, thank you so much. We love having you here. And she's been, I think you've been playing with us like six or seven years at least. It's been wonderful. And she's written some amazing music while uh, raising and homeschooling for a while, five kids. So uh, we were just talking before um, before uh, the, the gathering tonight, and she's got all of them in school now, so more writing time. <laughs> but... Um, but we, and it reminds me of something I did want to mention that a lot of people, some would know and some wouldn't know. We have a really, I think, powerful online CD that was produced originally about five years ago or six years ago called Write 7. And it's music that we have used. And that song is a, a staple for us in many ways was an anthem to our understanding of community. But it's, it's a really neat CD and it's available on Reverb Nation and where else, Josh? iTunes and all the, the, all the, the usual stuff. And we have continued to add to that a variety of projects. We have an Advent project. I know you played on the Advent project. Did you do the right seven as well? So you were, you were on the second project. So some, some very amazing music, and it's a great way to get to know some of the corpus because we feel like we are formed by a lot of text, not only biblical text, but musical text that take us into a space that sometimes spoken language is harder to do. So that is available, and if you, Josh could tell you more about that as well. I think you have a great Spotify channel of some of the, the historic music that we've done as well. But Krista, it's great to have you with us. Um, couple more quick uh, quick things. I wanted to mention, Josh, help me get the diet date right. Is it November 1st, 2nd, somewhere in there, right? November 2nd, which is a day off of All Saints Day. All Saints Day has been traditionally the beginning of our liturgical calendar, uh, just a month before Advent usually. Um, but it's been a time where we usually have spent the evening doing storytelling and kind of telling the narratives of people that have deeply impacted our lives, faith and otherwise. Uh, and we want to do that this year, but we want to do it in a little bit of a different way. And if you've like been just dying to like, we don't really preach here, but if you've been dying to preach here, this is your night to do that. Uh, we are doing a thing called Picha Kucha. How many of you guys have heard of that? Anybody know what that is? 
Like a couple of you do. It, it's been, it's kind of faddish, but it, it goes like this. So this is a night where um, we are opening the, the stool to seven or eight of you as kind of a soapbox night. This is your night to speak for exactly six minutes and 40 seconds on a subject of your choosing. Um, and how Picha Kucha works is people craft a talk with 20 slides. The slides will play. 20 seconds per slide. So it actually equals six minutes and 40 seconds. And if you've ever done this, it was crafted at first kind of in business environments where people were trying to streamline presentations, but I've done them in a variety of worship environments. And uh, so you'll get six minutes and 40 seconds on something that interests you. The last time I did this was in a, a big emergent event. And one friend of mine who's a theologian and a duck hunter did one on duck hunting. I have another maniacal friend that's become an ultra marathoner. He spoke on that and how does a a pastor do those things. I think I spoke on educational equity. Uh, And one of the interesting things about Pijakucha is that the topics are not coordinated, but they create something, kind of a quilt or a mosaic by being placed beside each other. Uh, And so we are are hoping to... um, to, uh, we've actually got one spot already taken. Jenny has grabbed one immediately. Uh, but <laughs> I'm picking in text. Jenny's in text, which means she gets me lobbying her every week. Hey, you're going to do a pizza kucha. But uh, we're looking for probably six or seven or eight. So it's your night to craft six minutes and 48, 40 seconds on a subject of your liking. We'll help you a little bit with that. But remember that and start thinking. And if you have ideas that you want to run by Josh or Mark or Sarah or uh, who else is on text team, uh, Jenny. Jenny, um, uh, Ellen, Ellen right here, and there's like six or seven of us. We will help you with that a little bit. So, uh, Kucha night coming up in a couple of months. Um, one last thing as well is, um, we're going to, one of the things I'm going to work on tonight in the dialogue is one of the neat parts of Emmaus Way is our unseen community. We have kind of a podcast community that listens to us every week. Some of you listen to the podcast for a year or two before you decided to come. So you know what I'm talking about, but we have people who do listen. So tonight you may hear me on occasion repeating what you say in dialogue or repeating something a little bit louder so that it'll play on the podcast. We're going to just monkey around with that to make sure Uh, we've had several podcasters say we have trouble hearing the dialogue so I may help that with some summaries so if I summarize what you say that's that's why I'm doing that but this is our chance to give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that you are around if you're around somebody you don't know of course introduce yourself or offer them the peace of Christ Uh, grab some coffee and uh, I, I see cake back there that's grabbable as well and I'll call us back in about two minutes So, um, got the whiteboard out because you know that means a new series at Emmaus Way. It's inevitable, like the first night of a series, I feel utterly compelled to list something, draw something, or something like that. So, tonight we are jumping into a new conversation on the concept of identity. And I promise you that this will not be overwhelmingly narcissistic, but, but one of the things that we're interested about is talking about the identity of our community. We often do that in the fall. We talk a little bit about who we are. Um, one of the things that you will get in this series, and one of the reasons we do that often, is we truly believe this, that every year 
especially this time of the year, new voices come into this community with the academic year beginning. And we never feel like we're the same community from year to year because the voices that are present change us. We, we feel like who we are, what we're about, what we're committed to is deeply impacted by the people who gather around the table and the people who gather around the text for us. So um, we are what we've been. But we are who we are in 2014, 2015, and we don't even know who that is yet. So that's always exciting for us. And I, if you wanted to, I could drone on. I won't. But um, just about kind of different seasons in the life of our community in the 10 years that we are uh, been together. Which ironically this year, I think we have a 10-year anniversary that, that we're going to roughly date around May or so. Uh, it, it depends on the Jakes has made demand that we date it in January, which we, it, it just when we started meeting in your home or when we rented our first property. I don't, I, you know, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, was it when we started dating or when we got married or when we moved in or, you know, you know and most people kind of do it like, oh, all three of those is the anniversary if gift giving is involved. Um, so, um, but anyway, so I don't know what our 10 year anniversary is, but it comes this winter to spring. So, um, so we're going to do a series on kind of who we are. And one question is, why do we care about identity? And I would will warn you, though I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to behave very, very well during this series, that this is what I study in my uh, nerdy academic world, is I study identities and agency. And what agency is, is kind of what people have the power to do given their identities. And I look at that in terms of collective social groups as well as, as individuals. So uh, this is a subject that's very interesting to me, but I'm going to limit the academic nerdy stuff to just a little bit. Uh, 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 but but I'm interested in this. But I'm going to ask you that question. Um, why are people, why, why, does, why does identity seem significant? Uh, don't think about it in terms of church or, but why do people's identities uh, think, seem significant, either in a positive or a negative way? I realize this is a question you might have gotten in anthropology 121 at some point in time. Not what you were thinking about, but identities. Sure. So who you are as a person in world, community, all of those things is highly related to identity. Highly related. If, if for example, your identity has uh, some level, and this is true for a lot of people, if, if maybe some sort of violence has been done to you at some point, that's going to affect your interaction with the world. If you have been deeply blessed by other people in your life, the same as well. Very good point, Elizabeth. Others, how, why is identity significant? So relationship, really, you know, for example, how many people like um, I've said this before from the kind of from the stool that sometimes I feel like it's important for me to tell you how I think about something without expecting that you will agree. But when people hold back, there's always some power, isn't it? If you're taught, if you especially if you're trying to be vulnerable and you have no idea about the person you're speaking to, it makes you feel incredibly unsafe. So there's something that liberates relationships often when we do identity. 
So I give me an example, and Andrew, I'll get you just next. I just had a question pop in my brain. An example of where identities could relate to some sort of uh, pain or violence that we do to other people. Right. Sometimes we use that term identity politic to label something. So to label someone else as the other. Um, and, and for us as readers of the New Testament, one of the things we know is that uh, if you ask Jesus a question like, like, hey, maybe like this, like, okay, who should I love in this room? Who's my neighbor? And who should I not love in this room? Who is the other? Um, that is where you usually got a snarky story from Jesus that rebuked the whole question. But you can, by defining who people are, use it as the power to exclude. Andrew, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I said that just as you raised your hand. You know, it's interesting. You're drawing it. There is a tendency, particularly in our culture, to think that you could separate personal identity from some sort of collective identity that you have. And in some cultures, that's just impossible to do. Now, I have done many identity series, and I've taken them in very multicultural groups. And often, at least the last time I did this, um, I was TAing a doctoral seminar on this, and a young woman from China said, you know, we don't even have a word for identity. I mean, that, there is no character. There is no picture. We don't talk about personal identity. In our culture. And so there's hardly, I mean, almost throughout the whole seminar, we had to construct the concept for her to, in some ways, put it in her vocabulary other than an English word that I don't have a definition for. So who we're around matters. Um, here's one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this during this thing is that just as Ben mentioned, over the course of the last eight to ten months, the lead team has done a marvelous job of walking us through a decision that you guys made about where this community would locate itself for the next year to five or six years or beyond. And one of the things that as we were talking about that decision uh, that came came clear to us is that it was an identity decision for us. There wasn't a good thing, to, a good option and a bad option. There, it wasn't that. But we had some sense that our location would impact our identity, which forced us to have conversations about what is our identity and 
what is what's significant to us in our identity. So in that conversation, in fact, Ben and I had a um, one of our many uh, breakfasts at Ye Old Waffle Shop in Franklin Street, which is our kind of place. Um, and, and we got a napkin out and started drawing pictures that became this series because it became so significant to think what truly is our identity. So that's where this is coming from. Now, Today, I want to take us into a biblical text, but we're going to do it a little differently than normal, merely because I didn't think of it until yesterday, so it's not in the bulletin. So we're going to, sorry, Chelsea, I botched Chelsea up on this one. But um, so here's what, um, here's what I need somebody, I need a, a writer for a second. Would anybody be willing to grab the, the, the pen, whiteboard pen? It's going to be no drawing, just writing words down. Would somebody be willing to do that while we do this? Yes. Chancy is ready. Chance, if you'll just come and pick your color, or you can do multicolors, or you can draw stuff if you'd like as well uh, in the back here. But I'm going to read a short two-verse biblical text. It's fascinating. It's a text on identity. It's in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. If you have a Bible or a smartphone or smart pad or you're just smart, you can feel free to just turn to that. But otherwise, I'm going to read this to you. And as I read this super slowly, as you hear terminology in this text that relates to identity, shout it out. I'm going to stop and Chance is going to write it on the board, okay? So there's going to be some words up there. You guys ready? All right. This was written, by the way, 1 Peter 2. One thing about 1 Peter is unlike letters in the New Testament, uh, many of them are written very specifically for a location. And, and we read it, but we know it was written to the Corinthians. We know it was written to the Ephesians, that sort of thing. This letter was a circular letter that was written to Gentile churches in Asia Minor, Turkey, up to Greece. It was passed around. So it doesn't have the hallmarks of, I'm just writing a note to Elizabeth and Jenny. And it's cool if the Jakeses look over and read it, but it's to Elizabeth and Jenny. Um, this is a, a more of a circular letter. So stop me when you hear terms or terminologies of identity. But you are a chosen race. Okay, chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy nation. I'm throwing royal priesthood up there too as well, right? God's own people. People, God's own people that you may proclaim Royal priesthood, we got that up there. The mighty, wait a minute, let's make sure that chance is caught up here. Okay, somebody said holy nation. I got that one. And God's own people, I heard somebody shout that. That you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness, called, yes, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once... You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Yeah, and, and the negative works as well. Not a people. So at some point, we've got some not a peoples, and we've got some God's own peoples running around. Okay. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, yeah, absolutely. Having not received or received mercy are both identity markers. See if Chance got him up there. Perfect. So lots of stuff. Look at that list. And 
What has the writer done here in terms of describe what what when you look at that list, what is the identity of the people that is are being written to here? What are they tell me what they're being told, what is being implied by what they've been told? Tell me anything you can about somebody receiving that list and given to them as words of identity. Okay, so there's linkage a la Andrew that this, you know, there's, there's identity is rooted in the identity of God. Sure. What else is happening here? Okay, there's a unique specialness. In fact, this is humorous, is that the people are getting this are sitting in this unbelievable cathedral, running cash through their fingers, shouting orders to their servants. They are living a huge... Actually, they're not doing any of that. They, they are receiving this stuff in little groups of 20 to 30 people, many of them hungry, starving. The beginning of persecution for people who were part of the Christian sect has begun. So there's some humor of getting that kind of designation for people whose lives do not look like a royal priesthood. Right. What else? What else is happening here? Yes. And it's interesting that that the language doesn't just talk about who they are, but who they once were. So there's an implication of radical transformation. They are not what they once were. Absolutely. What else is happening? Yeah, so they are identified, odd for us, they are identified as part of a collective rather than specific persons in the group. The group is being identified, and that's the, the key interest in, in identity here. Absolutely. What else? Uh, Jim. There's a couple of groups in there. They are a race, which is not a nation. You know, we have more watching nations turn themselves apart because they are multi um, a priesthood, which is close to a profession. Um, a people, which is not really quite a race. It's uh, something a little bit different than that, I would say. Um, so their identity is being uh, described from a lot of different angles. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So these terms are not in parallel with each other. They describe different aspects of their life. In fact, this is in some ways a totalizing description because it does not leave a lot of major areas of the world as they would know it untouched. You know, the ancient mind would have largely thought of two categories of the world, earthlies, earth stuff, and heavenlies, spiritual stuff. And, and often didn't think that those two things mingled all the time. But interestingly, this definition comprises both of the realms of the world as they know it. Anything else that you see in this dramatic identity? Some of it, I'm going to infer a couple of things, so you feel free to think creatively on this. What does it mean to be told that you are a people? That may help. There's some other people who might not be part of that people. Okay, there's distinction, right? Absolutely. And that strikes to what was said earlier about change. That, that, that there was not a people, now a people. So not a people does exist. Sure. Sort of a 
are similar within you so that you can be a part of that group. That makes you not the other. Right, absolutely. There, so there's distinction. Interestingly, people implies in some ways a mission. Something that a people does. Like, for example, you know, Caleb might, we, if I was written this to him, it might have, I might have referred to him as a biker person, as part of the community of crazed people who get up at four in the morning and ride bikes at massive speeds, dodging, dodging cars and rude drivers. And, uh, and, and in some ways, if I were to describe him as that, if, if, if he said, I actually, I'm, I'm afraid of bikes and uh, I, I tried to run half a mile the other day and threw up, we'd say, no, you're not a biker. You, the bikers are like Lance Armstrong. They, they run things and bike things. So we know that by calling him this and calling him that accurately, he does things. There is something missional. There's something active about being a cyclist. So often naming something means that there are practices involved. That's part of it. Another thing is um, when you often name a people, um, most people have a story. An, a historical story that they're a part of, and they expect it to end in a certain way. So uh, by identifying them with the people of God, they are launched. Ironically, the early Christians took on the most dramatic words given to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel had this huge repository of apocalyptic prophetic material that described their role in the culmination of all of God's work. So to call them a people gives them a past that they did not know was their past, and it gives them a future, a destination, that they now can accept as their destination. So these words are high-impact words. Um, let's talk a little bit more about... Now, this is the, this is the, the nerd portion of tonight. So uh, take it as... what. Let me give you some of my prejudices about identity. And I've, I've mentioned some of them already. But let me throw out a few things that I am going to kind of hold on to as a part of identity conversation. Nothing complicated. But you, in fact, you've said many of these. Is that when, when I think about identity, I think about identity at least on three different planes. An intimate, personal identity. Who is Andy? That is an, is an intimate identity. Um, I also think of identities in local space. So local space, who is Emmaus Way? Uh, probably no one here has journeyed more than 100 miles uh, to get here tonight. So we have a sense of locality in our being here. So there is intimate, who is Andy? Who are we in this local space that we're in? And then there's this, Andrew alluded to it, there's this whole kind of social, cultural, historical identity when he said, you're Americans and I'm an African. Uh, he implied two different kind of intense, large, long histories that involves more than a local space. So that's one thing. When you're talking about identity, you're often talking about multiple realms, not just one thing. Here's another one of my prejudices about identity, and it's one that I think is amazingly liberating, is that when we talk about identity, I don't think about something that is fixed. I think about us as perpetually becoming, perpetually taking on identities rather than having a fixed identity. To me, uh, let's pause on that one. Why might that be good news, to think of yourself as becoming rather than fixed? 
You're not stuck. Absolutely. Has anybody been stuck before where somebody described you as something that you couldn't get out of? So what is what was 16 for you and what do you there is too that they call me the princess. And I know a few of your parenting stories. I know you've cleaned up a few poop disasters and some, some non-princess-like activities as a part of your normal thing. And how many of you guys have had somebody who could not let go of you? I've had people, I had a boss who had an image of me as an arrogant jerk of a 22-year-old seminarian. And he was talking to me at 28 or 29 about something I did when I was 22 as if that was normal for me, that is, that's almost like if someone were, and I know you guys are all beautiful people, but uh, if any one of you, if there's even a single one of you who had an unattractive moment in middle school, just kind of a, you didn't like your hair, you didn't like your body, you grew to six foot and everybody else was 4'11", I don't know, none of you guys, but I've heard this happens to people. Um, and what if people insisted in every name tag you wore, you put that photo of yourself in seventh grade, that wouldn't be pleasant for me. I had this cowlick. I mean, you know what a cowlick is, right? My hair went up on, it had a circle, literally hair that's in a circle. And then it went up and I had buck teeth that kind of went like way out with two vampire teeth way up. I mean, I looked like I had lost a fight with a vampire uh, in the seventh grade. I do not like that photo. I do not share that photo. Uh, But that's kind of what identities that are fixed, you're stuck. Um, here's another thing you might find this encouraging is that I think of identity in plural identities is that we don't have a single solitary identity. That's just the thing that we are. Krista, you may experience this at seven in the morning. You are mom walking people to the bus. You might've made some breakfast, but at nine 30, you might be a songwriter. And, and that's a pretty big change from 7 o'clock to 9.30. So we have multiple identities because our lives live in multiple spaces. Here's another point on identity is that we make our identities in lots of things. In imagination, in play, we make them physically. There's things that we do that we touch, we taste, we, our, our senses are involved in our identity. We make products Uh, Whether it's something we write down, a photo that we take, art that we do, there is a material aspect of our identities. And our identities are rooted in historic struggles and problems and things that have happened over time. Um, and, And my final prejudice on identities is that I tend to really think that identities are formed in practice, in activities, in, in what we do, what we make is very significant. So when I was talking about Caleb and referred to him as a cyclist, uh, for me, it's easy for me to say that because I know he does some cycling. Uh, it does a lot of it and it's a part of his life. So listen to that list real quick. Many planes of identity, not fixed, not solitary, Forged in things like imagination, play, material, struggle, and highly aligned um, to practice. Somebody, like maybe one person, give me a spiritual implication 
If those, if identities are those things, not single, becoming, uh, give me a spiritual implication of that. That might not be how you were, how you were originally described as maybe a follower of God or a Christian or, or whatever your faith commitment is. What, what's, what, what does that mean in terms of our faithfulness? Any thoughts on that? I know that's a hard question. And sometimes when I've asked, I'm asked that, I say, today, <laughs> but maybe not tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, exactly. So, so there's things that you might do rather than an assertion you might make that, that claims that. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody else, kind of a, a spiritual religious implication of that list of, of many planes, not fixed, not solitary, forged in a bunch of things, practice stuff. Anybody else? Say that again, Jordan. As you are, someone else become. So you're impacting people. That your your identity is not self-contained. Uh, it's connected to other people's lives. It's intimately connected to other people's lives. They who they are affects who you are. Sure. Do you remember in my tradition, one of the most heretical texts in the whole uh, Bible was this idea of working out your salvation in fear and trembling. I mean, in my tradition, there was no fear and trembling over salvation. You were, and people weren't, and if you were, you could feel pretty good about yourself. And, and it, was, it was a very fixed thing. Um, but, but one of the things I'm describing is that we work out our position of who we are as faithful people, as servers of things, in a context, in practice, it's continually struggled over. Uh, but in my tradition, you were Christian for life, at birth, and, and, and no matter what you did, you kind of were fixed in that. So th- there are significant implications. Now, here's where we get some really exciting drawing from me. I want to talk a little bit about Christian communities. This is set up for the series um, of, of how identity is played out. Because one of the things I want to uh, get a sense of is, it's funny, in Emmaus way, as a, as a church over the last 10 years, we have been accused by people, and I mean that in a warm sense, of being the most traditional church that they've ever been a part of. And we've also been accused by people as being the most non-traditional church that they've been a part of. Now, usually you don't get both of those accusations, but we've had plenty of those. And often when I would ask people, what makes us traditional, what makes us the same, or what makes us different, that's really hard. A lot of times people might sense something about that, but not really know what it is. So I am going to draw kind of, um, would you hold this for me, Chelsea? If you'd sing something, that'd be great. Well, I'm like... <laughs> For Chelsea's parents out there in podcast land, the princess has sung a song for us. They don't listen to the podcast? No. I am shocked. Um, 
So let me draw a few things here. We're going to use, this is a friend of mine's metaphor. It's that of a playground. This is by Doug Pageant. If you're listening, this I'm using your thing. This is a very common way that church operates. This is a playground in the center here. So let's see. Let's put some, like a swing. Could that be a swing? And I can't, like a jungle gym. I don't know. There's a playground. So in this playground of really fun stuff, um, what most, like a lot of Christian communities would say is it's really important for us to know what is playground and not playground. And it's really important for us to distinguish who is in the playground and who is outside the playground. So what do they do? They build a big old fence around that playground. They use it with a better pen, but they do build a fence. And so in the playground here, it's really clear if Josh is right here, where is he? He is outside the playground. How about Ben, our lay leader? He is, he's ruling the playground. He's, 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 he's chasing Amanda around trying to pull her hair and, you know, invite her to like the fifth grade dance or something like that. But, but in and out. Now, what's, what's usual in this setting is, or, or what changes is what the fence is. Now, for example, if you've come from more evangelical or conservative traditions, the fence is usually doctrine. Is that you, you have to, and, and, and I've worked in churches who would say this explicitly, um, you are not in the playground if you don't agree to the doctrinal statement of faith. But we love you, and we are hoping that you're like, here's Phil, you know, hanging over the fence, trying to get in. We're trying to get you over the fence, you know, but the fence is doctrine. And so you have to agree to to a certain package of things that that gets you in the playground. Um, Now, if you came from a um, more of a mainline or liberal church tradition, um, and this is not true for, I'm generalizing, but um, what, what tends to happen in those traditions is that the fence is not doctrine. What might it be? You might take a guess. Yeah, liturgical practice or tradition. There's certain traditions that you follow, and so tradition makes you kind of part of the playground setting. How about if you're Catholic? What, what is the fence if you're Catholic? It's practice. It's the church itself is that you're either the church is a fence. The church is, you know, being part of the church means you're part of the community. So this is one way that churches do identity is there's a strong focus on uh, on the boundary. Um, Now, here's what tends to happen, though. Oh, Oh, and if you're Pentecostal, what's the fence? It's experience. It, it's, it's, you know, you, you can get crazy on the doctrine stuff, but there is a common experience that everybody has. So this is one set of ways to do church identity. I would, I would say this as too, as well, is that a lot of churches do this kind of thing as well. I grew up in the country, and we were very serious about cows, horses, pigs, Beast not getting outside of their fence area. So we often were sneaky. We would throw down a barbed wire fence, which said, don't go over this thing. But how many people have climbed a barbed wire fence? 
Oh, they are climbable. And if you can get over them, good for you. But we often busted down a little electric wire right along the middle of the barbed wire fence. So you're trying to climb up the barbed wire fence and forget or don't remember that there's like an electrical fence there. You get a little shock. So we have an extra fence hiding in the boundary. Now, in a lot of church communities, they have, besides the doctrinal, traditional, liturgical fence, there is usually some sort of social entity, some sort of hidden social reality that links to the other stuff. And it might be more important than the doctrinal, experiential. Like, give me an example of a social thing that's really a fence to Christian community. Okay, yeah, if you, like in my community, if you drank, your life was in the pit of abject horror. You're, you are going to be divorced, you are going to kill people, and you are miserable. Even if you looked like you were having lots of fun. <laughs> you were miserable, you just didn't know it. But So drinking, what else would be another one? Sexuality. Sexuality, and, and elaborate more on that. Have lots of sex, unless you are like having sex with the organ. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of d- demarcations, right? Uh, of 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 where sexuality is appropriate, inappropriate, heteronormativity, all of those things. There's and in different communities, it's a different thing. Absolutely. Somebody else. Clothing. In my church, again, I grew up fundamentalist. Some high school girls showed up one Sunday night. In shorts and t-shirts, they were turned away as non-worshippers. They were outside the playground. So this is kind of one way, kind of a boundary way of doing church. Oh, you were you really? Well, we're going to draw some other things. Here's another way to do church is to say, all right, there are no fences in this place. You're all welcome. There, I mean, there's no boundary. Here's Ben, lay leader Ben. He's trying to be in charge. He's building a fence. And uh, people on that side of the room get angry and they knock the fence down. They're like, we do not have fences here. But in this playground, somebody decided to build the jungle gym and the swing set right here in the middle. So all of a sudden they're saying, you can stand out here if you want to. But there are no playground stuff out here. I mean, you need to be moving toward the middle because the middle is where it's at. There's no fence, but this is where the good stuff is. Give me an example of a church identity that does this or a way of functioning that kind of moves stuff to the middle and and tell me what it is in the middle. And by the way, I'm not criticizing all of these. This is just a different way of doing it. What, so, give me. Can you think of an example of something that someone puts in the middle? But the, I'm sorry. Okay, that actually is a good. That's a really good example. Is that, that 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 some would say, "Hey, you can wallow in poverty and sin. We love you, but if you get in the middle of this deal, you join the special Emmaus Way Super Club. Um, prosperity will be yours." Right. Absolutely. Another example. I'm, I'm sorry, Wendy, I didn't hear you. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, it may as well. This table used to be in the corner. It used to be kind of small. It used to be kind of lame. Now it's really pretty, and it keeps moving to the center. We have some central things that we're saying, this isn't over there, it's here. 
So there are lots of liturgical things, altars, stuff like that. In, in the megachurch background that I grew up, the center, the uber secret center, was to hang out with the megachurch pastor. Because only like four to five to ten people got to do that. But everybody was striving to do that. And, and ultimately you got promoted kind of in the inner ring. So that's a second way. Sacraments, absolutely. Sure. Okay, we've still got our stuff here. Right, that's true too. That's exactly a long tradition. Is you know, you t- when you tend to have missionary parades, it's because they were doing the stuff that everybody thought, "Oh my God, please don't make me do that stuff." But but because they'll do it instead of me, we better make it a big deal when they come home. Right? right? I mean, that was kind of a way that played out. Absolutely. Sure. Without a doubt. That's a great example, Mary Man. Here's a different way. Here's a third way to play church. Big fence, center stuff. Number three is this. Say, woohoo, we got us a big open field. And so what's in the field? Nothing. There is nothing in that field. So, but we're telling you that if you want to come in this field, you can play. But what do you play in the field? Josh, what are you bringing? Uh, I'll bring a, a baseball glove. All right. So Josh is, I can't draw a baseball glove, but he's got a baseball bat and a baseball. So who else wants to come play in here? Rachel, what are you bringing? I have no idea what that is. A thing of a jig. Rachel, <laughs> Rachel's thingamajig is in the middle of here. Anybody else want to bring something to the playground? You know, a dinosaur. Oh my goodness, that sounds like something that definitely needs to be like. Uh, <laughs> it's Sharknado dinosaur, but but it's in the middle. Of, it's a big mouth. All right, just put some eyes on this bad boy, and that's a, that's a dinosaur. So, but, but this way of doing church is like you bring your stuff to the middle of the space, and in the space you define what's happening here. So those are kind of three different ways of doing... I will sleep. That's so well done. I'm going to leave that up. Um, the, um, so those are three different ways of, of doing church. Now, given those three definitions... Just as a start, we're going to talk about this a lot. Who are we? One with the fence, two with the center, three with the open space playground with Rachel's thingamajig, uh, Josh's baseball bat, and that serious dinosaur. Yeah, you know, the best I can give you is, I, 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 without getting it, I'm going to do a little jargon here, and if you don't get this, I'll do it real fast. So the kind of the emerging church, emergent church tradition that I've been very involved with the last 20 or 30 years, a lot of our com- conversation has been about not being a, the first one, a bounded set or a center set, but an open set community. So where the, there's not a center at all, there 
multiple nodes. Like, I'll give you an example. Here's a, a church of mine, a friend of mine, pastors, has like 12 to 13 different lead teams. And so these lead teams, like, might be worship, preaching, various projects, all kinds of stuff. But there's no center to them. And in fact, the way they hire their staff is that everybody in these nodes writes a job description if they think the job description requires a staff person. And so, and they, they, um, and then they bring it to a consensus whole church meeting where they decide not by majority rule, but by consensus what jobs they're going to pay for. So my friend who's a founder of this and is, a, you know, a well-known author and all that kind of stuff, he is paid by the preaching committee, like 20% of his salary, a project committee that does work in Guatemala because he does a lot of that for 30% of his salary and the rest of it's dispersed but it's a there is not a center there's no one in charge each of these nodes are considered equally as significant as the other and what the church does is what they do missionally is the stuff that all the nodes say this is a good idea because it impacts this node this node this node this node and these other nodes say that's good stuff too and, and, and a lot of this has come out of kind of an understanding of the Internet. Um, uh, Andrew, you would you know, know in terms of intellectual property, the idea that no one owns stuff. And it's kind of silly to say, if you were to get in my yard, uh, my backyard, I've got some rocks in some places where grass won't grow. But I'm very quick to tell you that those are my rocks and that's my barren yard because I own it, which is kind of a silly thing to say. Because I don't really own those rocks. I just have a house sitting on them. You know, so that's where this comes from. Now, what do you think, Emmaus Way? Uh, are, are, in what way might be, we be like one, two, or three? Because I don't think we're any one of those things. And we're going to talk a lot more about this. But, yeah, Brett, you want to take a shot? I think, I think I'm trying to think about this. I think oh my goodness. I would want to think or want to hope that, that we could be the, that third one. Uh, that's this kind of decentralized, like group that whoever happens to bring, you know, whoever happens to show up on any given week brings what they, you know, carry with them. And I've certainly seen ways where we've changed depending on who is here, um, you know, like just, even just musically, the way that we've shifted with um, staff. And, um, but I also realize, I want to recognize too, that, we're, that we're, we all do have that number two piece where we do have like layered engagement where like you can show up, you don't have to engage in leadership and you can fully participate, but you can also go to small group, or you could go to pub group, or you could go to the arts committee, or the, the entire text team, or even, you know, eventually the lead team, and not that those are, like, hierarchical, but they are different levels of engagement that, if there's a center, moves you closer to the center being, I don't know that Brett, I think you are on board with that. That's a good... And Krista, I just looked at the clock and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm entertaining myself. Uh, and usually when I'm here, I'm looking at it. So we're going to start in just a second. But, but um, so I, Brett, I had a similar reaction to this was that we have some center stuff. You hear us talk about things like the last series we did. We talked about the, the gospel as the center of our community. And a lot of times we talk about us as being Christological, that trying to understand who Jesus was, who the Christ was, is center to us. But we also have a design where there's not a center to the 
organizational hierarchy is that there, there's, you know, who says that the text team is more important than the children's team, that's more important than the aesthetics team or the group that works on the faith team. These things are all significant to us and they all have voice into the process. So we've got some threeness to us. We've got some two-ness to us. Probably the most controversial decision that we made um, as an early church community is that we decided we weren't probably very much like a number one group. And so when we, like, for example, if you join this community, we have a ritual belonging called the minister's liturgy. That's a rehearsal of our values. We don't set an expectation of who says those things other than their willingness to, to live in those values. So that was controversial. My former church um, was very uncomfortable with, with, with one sacramental decision that we made. This was extremely controversial, more controversial than child sacrifice, I think, um, was that we decided to have an open communion table. That, that we invite everyone to the table because I came from a tradition that fenced the table. I actually use that term as describing who can take communion and who can't take communion but is invited to watch others take communion. And, and so we had a different language about that. So here's where this thing is going. And I'm going to do this in 30 seconds or 90 seconds. Is when I've been thinking about Emmaus Way, I'm going to change the metaphor here from the playground. I think of... Four, have you heard the analogy, Mark Williams had, of, of spinning plates in the air, throwing plates in the air, kind of like, you know, I have too many plates, I got too many projects going on. I got to have a better pen. Emmaus Way to me is a community that has what's unique about it is it has at least four plates in the air, four big things that are equally of value to us. And here's the funky part is that a couple of these plates don't naturally fit together. We combine them together when, when they're really a tension. Like, for example, we'll get to this in the third and fourth week. One of them is theological orthodoxy. We're part of a Christian narrative. But another plate is intellectual curiosity and theological and spiritual curiosity. Usually those two things don't go together very often. Um, but we will talk about those things. So I see us as a community that has four plates together and then how the plates relate have some really significant practices hooked in. And I think the practices are probably more important than the plates. So when we do this series the next four weeks, we're going to take a week per plate and then the final week, we're going to talk about the practices that keep these plates in the air without breaking into each other. But this is kind of a vision. And if you will, as we get to it, think about that. What Does that make us a center set community? Does it make us a, a, a kind of multinodal? Or what are we? But I think looking at these four plates will give us a strong sense of kind of our mission and our identity. Krista. I went super long tonight, but I'm more than excited about hearing obsession, um, obsession, <laughs> confession, and absolution. Do you want both songs? Are we, are we okay? Okay. I won't go into the uh, story behind this um, as much as usual in the interest of time, but it is um, a song that was inspired by an author named Dan Walzer, and he was describing his own experience of grief as being in, uh, strapped to a chair upstairs in the in the bedroom of a burning house and you see all these people who love you and care for you outside with hoses and they're trying desperately to make it stop and to put out the flames but meanwhile you're still alone in that room 
And what you're so wanting is someone to enter the house and pull up a chair beside you and sit in the burn with you. And um, it speaks to me as someone who um, really, relative to suffering in the world, has been rather protected so far. Um, but I want to know how to draw close to people when, um, when it's hard and painful to draw close. And it might mean suffering alongside. And um, so this has come close now. And do we go directly into the next one? Okay.
On Friday night, Sarah and I went to a show at the Carolina Theater, uh, and there were two performers, uh, John Hodgman and a guy named David Reese. For those of you who don't know David Reese, he's a native of Chapel Hill, so that's a good thing. I guess a bad thing if you're a dookie, maybe, but um, a local of this area, and he has a TV show now on the National Geographic channel that's called Going Deep with David Reese. And the premise of the show is so interesting to me. He basically takes something that seems so mundane or so banal that couldn't possibly be anything left to explain about it. And then he does an entire show of how to do it absolutely as best you could in every situation. So, for instance, one of the very first episodes he did was how to open a door. And that was the show. He spent half an hour talking about different kinds of doors. Is it a revolving door? Does it swing out? Does it swing in? Uh, Are you trying to maximize retention of air inside the room? Are you trying to maximize efficiency of movement in your body? And and suddenly, there are all of these questions that you've never even thought to ask. The slogan for his show is defamiliarizing the strange in order to encourage wonder thereby. Okay. Slightly strange way of saying to take things that seem so normal and so banal and so regular in our lives and to force us to look at them in such a way to begin to ask some really deep questions about why we do them, how they're meaningful, what we want to get out of them. Um, and, And because of doing those things to increase our wonder at those everyday things that we do. There is a thing that we do every week here in this community, and that is this table. And it consists of a bunch of seemingly simple practices. We break bread for one another, and we say the body of Christ broken for you. We share wine or juice from one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. We encounter one another. We have conversations. And yet, as you take the table tonight... I want you to start asking some questions that will help us uh, as we continue in this identity series. Who are we as a community when we do this? When we don't fence the table, when we break bread for one another, when we pour wine and juice for one another? And who might we be if we could do this better? So I invite you all to the table to do something familiar and hopefully to wonder.